open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Why are you doing that? Uh, just a reminder in the narthex of the signups for the various things we mentioned. Um, and so please do that after the service. And also want to mention that the bulletin that meant, says hymn 678, but it's hymn 679, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. So I just want to make sure you're not looking at the wrong hymn as we close. Well, we continue our series in Ecclesiastes. I'll be reading verses 12 to 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. <laughs> Father, as we once again turn to this uh, book, we ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts about where true wisdom is found in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we began, this is the third week. Our first two weeks really were dealing with introductory matters when it comes to the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we discovered in the first sermon that, uh, that we are being taught here by an older Solomon. It's toward the end of his life. Um, he's repented of his foolish living. He is now, for the benefit of all, sharing that experience, uh, reflecting upon life under the sun. And his conclusion is that all is vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everything is nothing, which is the theme of the book. And then in verses 3 to 11, Solomon uses a series of examples from nature and human experience to prove that there really is no benefit from all our toil under the sun. It's kind of like the endless cycles of nature with all its activity, which still gains nothing. So it is with us, man. All our human activity of speaking, of seeing, of hearing, gains us absolutely nothing. The journey goes on and on, but we never arrive. And so we see that Solomon here is on a quest, a quest for meaning, for existence. And he begins generally in verses 3 to 11 with a poetic reflection on the outcome of such a quest. But then, now, beginning in verse 13, the quests, plural, he'll take, they begin in earnest. And they'll continue through to chapter 2, verse 26, where Solomon draws the conclusion from his several journeys that he'll go on from all his toil under the sun. And so by way of a theme, chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 26, is Solomon's personal testimony, his confession. It's his confession of his inability to resolve life's most important issues apart from God. In verse 12, uh, the preacher introduces himself again. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. 
And when he says, I have been, he's using what's called the perfect tense. He's telling us that he's writing the near or toward the end of his reign. After he's been king for some time now, that's what he's addressing. And so he's writing from the vantage point of age and experience, telling us now what he's learned about life. It's kind of a royal announcement. And unlike other royal announcements of that time in the ancient Near East, Solomon avoids hyperbole. He just speaks truthfully. He speaks honestly, and he speaks for the benefit of his hearers. There's no I conquered the world speech that you would have heard during that time. I'm the greatest of the greatest, those type of speeches. It's just simple. He says, look, I tried to find out the meaning of life under the sun, and I failed. That's what I set out to do, just like everyone before me and everyone after me. Now, that being said, we, we need to remember Solomon's credentials. He does claim to apply his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And so the question is, does Solomon have the resources to be able to conduct such an investigation? And the answer is yes. Think of the things we know about Solomon. First Kings 4, we're told, Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. That's verse 21 of First Kings 4. And so he had all the finances he needed to, to go on these quests. And he also had all the wisdom that we know. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And, and so Solomon here has all the resources necessary for experimenting uh, with different solutions to see what made life worth living. And so with these resources in his hand, he, he sets out on his first quest. And see, what he's trying to do, he's come to the conclusion that all our toil is not worth it. It, it gains us nothing. And so now he goes on this quest, applying his great wisdom to see if everything, if, 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 if everything, if all is truly vanity. Is that the case? And see if he can find something more meaningful, something more substantial. And for such a quest, we don't, we don't need a mighty warrior. What we need is someone who is a top-ranked philosopher, so to speak. And so there's no better guide than Solomon, the, the brightest of them all. There was no one before him and no one after him that is better suited for this quest. And, and so he begins in earnest. Look at verse 13. So I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Uh, this is a sincere and it's a, a comprehensive quest. He applied his heart. The, the quest to find meaning in life through wisdom comes from the very core of his being. He focused his mind and, and he disciplined his heart to know the truth. It was a sincere quest and it was a, a comprehensive quest. The words seek and search indicate the seriousness of his efforts, of his diligence in doing this. Uh, one writer said he was like an ancient Renaissance man. You know what a Renaissance man is? It's the person that knows everything about everything. 
right? You talk to them and you're, you're, you're mentioning something about a war and they say, oh yeah, in 1812 on a Tuesday morning at 7 a.m. And they're able to just spill out all the answers and then you tell them about a TV show and they know all about it. Then your TV breaks and they can fix it. It's just the way it is. They, they can do it at all. And so Solomon's like that. He's a Renaissance man. He wanted to know as much as he could about as many things as he could. He wanted to know everything about everything under the sun. And that's why it was so important that we established his credentials. We, we needed to make sure he had the qualifications to actually uh, make such a pursuit. It's one thing to say, I'm going to do all the research and I'm going to do everything I can to come to a conclusion. But if I don't have the ability to do that research or the wisdom to understand what I'm finding out, well, then my conclusion may be incorrect. It may be uh, shoddy. But see, Solomon was qualified. He, he knew everything about everything. And so he embarks on this quest to find meaning in life. And what does he find? What is the outcome? Look at the second half of verse 13 to 15. And he goes on that quest. He's trying to find meaning. He says, it's an unhappy business that God had given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. He looked, and he studied, and he thought, and he pondered, and he experienced, and what did he find? He found that wisdom ultimately has no answers that satisfy All his wisdom, all his resources cannot turn up the answer to his most basic question. What is the purpose of life on this planet? He says it's an unhappy business, verse 13. Uh, We know many things in this world bring us unhappiness. Uh, That is true. But Solomon's saying something a little bit different here. The word for unhappiness is more negative. It, It literally refers to something bad or something evil. It's a moral category rather than an emotional state is what he's talking about. The problem is not simply that life makes me unhappy. That's true. And that's what Solomon finds. That's true. But it's evil. Life is evil in itself. It's not just an unfortunate business. It's bad business. And the business Solomon is talking about can mean the everyday things we do, human activity generally. Or it can refer to the very quest to understand the meaning of life. It's the pursuit of knowledge itself that turns out to be such a bad business. The longer Solomon looked for answers and the harder he tried to understand life, the more burden he became. Sometimes uh, the more we try to, to know, the more frustrated we get with life and all its unanswerable questions. And that seems to make sense of verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after whim. Or more literally, all is vapor and herding or chasing after the wind. Uh, trying to, to capture vapor is futile. Striving or chasing or herding the wind leaves us what? Empty handed. And so whether we're chasing or herding or striving after, there's nothing we can do to catch the wind. Today we would say it's like herding cats. That's the saying. And if you think herding cats is difficult, well, try capturing the wind. That's the point he's making. And so Solomon's saying, investigating and searching out by wisdom to find a meaning in life, he says it's futile and it results in nothing. It's just all empty. Here we go again. 
By the way, get ready for this for the next few weeks. Every week, I'm going to tell you how terrible your life is and how it's meaningless. Well, I'm not. Solomon's going to do that. It's all empty. See, if intellect, one writer said, if intellectualism brought fulfillment, then our colleges and universities would be camelots of peace. But they are not. Investigation through wisdom doesn't make you happier. It has the opposite effect, actually. Think of these words by Richard Dawkins, one of the, the great minds of our day. He has concluded that human existence is neither good nor evil, neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking any purpose. That's the world. That's what Solomon's saying. His intellectual pursuit, apart from God, has failed to find a meaning to his human existence. All the knowledge he had, and he says nothing's worth pursuing. And that's where all intellectual pursuits under the sun lead us. Well, Solomon brings to this to a conclusion in verse 15. And this is one of his thousands of Proverbs. He writes, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, just as what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is not there cannot be counted, so so man cannot change what's going on around him, right? What is done under the sun. This is how the Living Bible translates this. What is wrong cannot be righted. It is water over the dam, and there is no use thinking of what might have been. We cannot understand these crooked things. Why do tornadoes come and devastate one side of a street and not the other? I've seen it when I was in Florida. A hurricane destroyed the house around me. Trees falling on it. Our house was perfectly fine. We didn't have electricity. The neighbor did. Why? Uh, we have no idea. Why do some people get a, a deadly disease and, or in a car accident while others do not? Everything seems to go well. There are many things in life we wish we could straighten out, but uh, we don't know how to do it. We can't, we can't do it. One writer said, we suffer arguments at home, conflicts in the church, wrongs done in the workplace, mistakes made by the government, our own moral failings, financial troubles, physical disabilities, the list go on and on and on. There's always something in life we wish we could bend back into shape, but some of our circumstances cannot be corrected. No matter how hard we try, we cannot bend them in a different direction. And so life doesn't add up. What is lacking cannot be counted. Life is what it is, and there's nothing we can do to fix it. Think of all the things we're powerless to change. In all my years of of ministering and counseling, I would say one of the biggest issues in someone's life often is that they're trying so hard to change something they have absolutely nothing uh, or any control over. They have no way of changing. I'm gonna, I will be happy. I will be okay if I could change their behavior. You can't. And so their frustration sets in. We certainly cannot bend life to our own will simply by the exercise of human wisdom. That's what Solomon's getting at. I'll just fix this intellectually. And there are so many things we're powerless to change. Now, basically, this proverb drives home the conclusion that the labors of mankind, all our hard work under the sun, ultimately prove, as verse 3 says, unprofitable. Verse 8 says they're unsatisfying. Verse 9 and 10 say they're unremarkable. Uh, Verse 11 says they're unrememberable. 
And verse 14 says, unsuccessful. That's life. That's the way it is. And we, we cannot alter it. Trying to do so only brings about frustration. And so Solomon's quest here failed. Human wisdom could not give him the answer to the meaning of life. However, he doesn't give up. It doesn't stop him. Look at verses 16 to 18. Here Solomon will take kind of a different track. He'll, he'll try something different. From the search of all things by wisdom, he, met, he, he moves on to actually examining wisdom itself. In verse 16 and 17 we read, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience in wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Now, in these verses, Solomon uses wisdom three times, and he, and he wants us to know precisely how wisdom is different than madness and folly. When he says madness and folly, he's not talking about insanity, as if, you know, he, he was going to go insane. He's talking about immorality. He was not trying to see if losing his mind would help him understand the meaning of life. Rather, what he's trying to understand is the difference between right and wrong in world under the sun. Uh, that's the way the words madness and folly often are used in the Old Testament to refer to the mad foolishness of living life in disobedience to God. And that's how many attempt to live life. They recognize that man does not get along well without God, but they struggle to find a way to do it. They see the problem so clearly but cannot find the answer. And this must have caused Solomon unique pain. He was the wisest person on earth. If he could not find the answer, no one could. Again, why it was so important that we established how smart and where Solomon stood in the scheme of things. Uh, unfortunately, Solomon studied folly all too well. He tried wisdom. He went on the folly, and he did a good job there. We're told in 1 Kings 11 that Solomon fell into much foolish sin. He took 700 wives, 300 concubines, says verse 3 of 1 Kings 11, and he worshiped many idols. Now, we, we look at Solomon as a wise king, a king of Israel. Uh, here we have books of his in the Bible, and it says, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was his, the heart of David his father. And it goes on to tell us that he set up idols to worship different gods to appease his wives. And so the man who knew so much wisdom learned more about folly than anyone ever should. And, and what was the result of that? And he did nothing different between right and wrong. Did he know, figure it out? Is there anything that he learned from this to help find meaning in life, not at all. I perceive that this also was but a striving after the wind, says verse 17. And then Solomon concludes again with another proverb. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Seeking to understand wisdom itself and trying to find meaning in folly is also a chasing after the wind. It's a pursuit that leaves us empty-handed. And so it brings us much frustration, verging on anger. That's what vexation means. It brings with it sorrow because the world does not seem to make sense. Each new tidbit of information plunges Solomon now deeper into deeper hopelessness. 
as wisdom increases, so does his sorrow, because he becomes more aware of the pain and suffering in this world. And there's nothing he can do about it. An old proverb says, a wise man is never happy. And so here's Solomon's point. Wisdom cannot change reality. Actually, having wisdom only makes reality worse. If you're unsure about that, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Satan tempts Eve with what? That she would have the knowledge of good and evil. How did that turn out? Uh, They got their knowledge, and along with that knowledge, they were alienated from God. And so that knowledge only added to their sorrow, and it's been that way ever since. Let me give you three examples of this of how this wisdom, having more and more wisdom, caused more and more pain. One's going to be silly, uh, one's going to be serious, and one will be uh, pseudo-scriptural, you'll see. First, imagine you're like me, and you're an amateur when it comes to music, but you want to go to a concert, and you simply admire uh, the concert, a gospel according to Bach, for example, or some other symphony or orchestra, and you're going to go with a musical professional like Doug or Jocelyn here or Stu, and, and I promise you, as we're all there, me and my amateur status and their professional status, we're going to have a major difference between our experiences. See, their expertise in the area of music will allow them to appreciate the music more. They'll understand its nuances. Their wisdom and knowledge allows them to pick up as well, though, the several mistakes that are made when the person performs the music. And they're able to distinguish between when something is played well and something's played poorly. Their knowledge does not allow them to overlook the many flaws. Whereas I'm there, and I think, man, these people are perfect at music. This is wonderful. And I've had this happen at, at concerts that I've done with the professional musicians at my older church, And I was thinking, man, that was so great. And I'd had somebody tell, yeah, I guess. Like, they don't want to say anything. And then I pry them and pry them. And they're like, well, they, you know, they were off key after, you know, I'm making that up. But you get the idea. That experience, the wiser you are in things musical, the better ear you have, and the more bad the performance, the more pain you feel. And so that's a silly example. Now, this is a tough transition because we're going from silly to something very, very serious. I I want you to imagine years ago in Germany, and people are put on trains, and they're heading to the camps. And those who were in the know, those who were wiser, those who were aware of where they were heading, they were surely experiencing greater pain as the train made its way down the tracks. Others, so we're told, that they believed that they were being taken home or taken to safety, and they were just going along for the ride in ease, and some of them probably even experiencing joy and did not experience the journey in the same manner. Uh, The point is, the more you learn about life's tragedies, the greater will be your anguish. And then finally, a biblical example And like I said, pseudo-biblical, it's a biblical story, but with an interpretation. If you ever heard of Dorothy Sayers, she's written a book called The Man Born King. It's a play, and it's a play cycle of the life of Christ. And in that book, she has this interesting take on the person of Judas, 
Judas Iscariot. I, I tend to see her point here. We know Judas as the betrayer. That's how we know him. He was a trusted disciple of Christ. He was in charge of the money bags for the disciples, and yet he betrays our Lord. Why? Well, Sayers says it's because he was the only disciple who truly understood where everything was heading. This is what she writes. He means to be faithful, and he will be faithful. He'll be faithful to the light which he sees so brilliantly. What he sees is the true light, only he does not see it directly, but only its reflection in the mirror of his own brain. And in the end, that mirror will twist and distort the reflection. See, Judas, she believes, knew Jesus was going to die. Whereas the others weren't quite getting it. Jesus had said it over and over to them, and they weren't getting it. And this knowledge... And understanding that things weren't going in the direction he thought they were going, it caused him to turn on the Lord and betray him with a kiss. And see, it also illustrates for us the type of wisdom Solomon is talking about. It's a worldly wisdom, not a heavenly wisdom. Judas was plunged into despair because he understood Jesus was going to die, but he understood it only from an earthly vantage point. If he would have had true wisdom, wisdom from above, if he would have seen the reflection, as Sayer says, of the true light, not only in the mirror of his own brain, he would not have been in despair, and he would not have betrayed his Lord. He would have been rejoicing because he would have understood that although Christ was going to die and although things aren't going in the direction I wanted them, the result of that death was my salvation. And that, and then, then he wouldn't have betrayed him. But see, his wisdom only reached as high as the skies. It was wisdom under the sun. And so a different wisdom was necessary for, for, for Judas to grasp the meaning of Christ's death. It wasn't that he was dying. It was why he was dying. And this is why these two types of wisdom, as Solomon can say of wisdom in Proverbs, blessed is the one who finds wisdom. I've just spent the last 20 minutes telling you how it's futile. Actually, Solomon's been telling you that. It's a waste of time. And by the way, the more you know, the more you're going to hate life. And then he says in Proverbs, though, blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. It's a contradiction. For the gain from wisdom is better than the gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. Wisdom, she, he, he, he personifies it. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left are riches and honor. Her ways are a ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. He just said it's going to destroy your life. Get, get wisdom. I had it all, and it, and it just made me miserable. And here he says it'll bring peace. She's a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. To those who hold fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of her. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. It seems like a contradiction. And I'll close with this. See, in Ecclesiastes, 
Wisdom, and we'll see this over and over again, wisdom brings sorrow and vexation and a striving after the wind. But in Proverbs, Solomon says wisdom brings a blessing and peace. It's more precious than jewels and is pleasant and brings life. And the difference is seeking wisdom under the sun is, far, is fine as far as it goes. I'm not saying here everybody should just be dumb to everything. But it doesn't go far enough. And so because it doesn't go far enough, it ends in folly. But when our seeking and our searching takes us beyond the world to the Lord who by wisdom founded the earth and by understanding established the heavens, it ends with life for our soul. Do you see the difference as Proverbs 3 states? And if it was true in the time of Solomon, how much more is it true today? In Matthew, Jesus says this, the queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. See, in Christ, says Colossians, lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so in Christ, in him, we move beyond futility to true wisdom. A wisdom that's from above, as James chapter 3 says. And this wisdom can change reality and can take a vexing and sorrowful situation and actually make it better. Wisdom under the sun, as Solomon shows, cannot do that. How does it do it? Through the cross. This is what the Apostle Paul says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, and I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom under the sun, the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, Christ the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, it's the cross. It's the wisdom of the cross that makes the crooked things of life straight again. It's the wisdom of the cross that adds life to what is lacking. What the best of wisdom cannot do, Christ has done. All the wisdom in this world under the sun could never settle the debt you have with God, but Christ has done it. He has charted a new direction for your life. He has sorted out our confused values, and, he, and he's freed us from our enslaved spirits. And so the Apostle Paul will go on to say, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, in Christ, in Jesus, we, we enter into a relationship with the Heavenly Father, and that, beloved, is the meaning of life. That, beloved, is the path to heavenly wisdom. 
See, some people, I, I, I don't know if that includes you or maybe people listening, you live in the happy bliss of ignorance. That is what Solomon won't allow. He'd rather you have sorrow in the light of worldly wisdom than joy in the darkness of your ignorance. He wants to press you to show you that everything you're relying on outside of Christ will not bring life or joy or peace. He spends time showing you the impossibility of finding any answers under the sun. So what will you do? You'll look past the wisdom of this world to the wisdom of God. And that wisdom is ultimately found in our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his cross. See, Jesus entered into all the darkness and and crookedness and anguish of life in this fallen world in order to show us the wise way to live. And so know this. If you've committed your life to Christ, if if that's you, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, all the struggles in this world, including trying to make sense of things that you just cannot manage to do, make sense of everything that happens, all those things will someday be clear. Jesus will see to it. In the meantime, we need to follow the words of wisdom found in the book of Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Let's pray. Father, how often we wallow in our worldly wisdom, trying to figure things out that you have not revealed, and all brings is despair. And so I pray, Father, as those who are indeed followers of Christ, that are in Christ, that you would direct us to the heavenly wisdom. Help us to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And for those who are still living in ignorance and darkness, send them the light of life that they may believe. In Christ's name, amen.